Well, good morning, Four Corners Church. It's a blessing to be together again on the Lord's Day, and uh, let me just start by saying Happy Father's Day to all of the dads here. You know, I was recently listening to a uh, podcast, and and the person was describing it was a, it was a biblical counseling podcast. And the person was describing about being a dad, and the word that he used, and he said that this was the vision statement even for uh, the men's ministry at his church, basically it was one word, and it was weakness. It was weakness. And the idea behind it was that we father out of much weakness, and we are constantly in need of God's grace. We are a dependent people. You know, the place of self-reliance is the is the place of the pit for a dad and a husband. And so if you're here today as a dad and you feel pretty defeated, uh, maybe you feel as though you aren't being the dad that God wants you to be, that God tells you to be in his word, my prayer for all of us is that we will really recognize that weakness and we'll go to the Lord for help. We'll find in him the strength and the rock that we need to be the dad's imperfectly that God has called us to be. And most importantly, to be the kind of dads, kinds of dads who point our children to the heavenly father, the one who does not fail and who is not imperfect. If you would go and go with me in your Bibles to Romans 9, we are in a pretty difficult passage. Uh, Some passages are difficult because it is challenging to figure out what the author is saying. Maybe the logic is difficult. I don't think that's the case for this passage. I think what makes this passage so difficult is that it is hard to swallow. Uh, Some are hard to swallow and some uh, you're trying to figure out where to bite into it. Uh, This one I think is hard to swallow for us. So Romans 9 verses 19 to 23, that's where we are today. So far in Romans 9, we've seen that Paul moves his argument forward by using objections to his message. That's the method that Paul is using as he enters into this chunk. So if you're visiting with us today or, uh, or you haven't been in a while, uh, we really are in uh, a mini-series within a series. Romans 9 through 11 is a distinct unit within the larger epistle. So I'm going to take a moment just to kind of walk through what we've seen so far, but... Uh, What we've seen so far is that Paul carries his argument along uh, by means of objections. And there's a pattern that we can discover here up to today's text, and it is statement, objection, response. That's how Paul is teaching us, teaching his readers, by statement, objection, and response. So let me just walk through what we've seen briefly so far in Romans 9. He states in verses 1 to 5 that he is greatly grieved over the fact that most of the Israelites, God's chosen people, have rejected the God of Israel. They've rejected God. How do we know they've rejected God? Well, because they have rejected his Christ. They have uh, dishonored the Son, as Jesus says, and therefore they have dishonored the Father who sent him. So Paul is greatly grieved that his kinsmen, but even more importantly, that the very people of God historically, the the nation of Israel has largely rejected their God, rejected his sent 
Christ. So that's the statement. The objection to this comes in verse 6. And it goes something like this. Well, I guess God has proven unfaithful to his word of promise. Paul recognizes at the very beginning that the, the Jewish people, the, the, the Israelites, are the recipients of God's promises. And so here we have a phenomenon where the, largely the nation has rejected God, has rejected Christ. And so one objection to Paul's A description of the gospel to Paul's description of what God has done in Christ is, okay, Paul, well, I guess God has just proven unfaithful to his word of promise. God's faithfulness for Paul is on the line at this point. And Paul responds to it really in two ways. The first part of his response is that not all Israelites belong to true Israel. And so the apostle gives us this category, this concept called true Israel, those who are according to the promise. And we find this elsewhere. We get it especially in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So that's the first part of his response to or this objection about God's faithfulness, that not all Israelites belong to true Israel. The second part of his response is that God is working out his electing purposes to save some. And he'll go on later to describe this some whom God has saved, whom God is saving in Paul's day. He'll go on to describe this some as the remnant. So some among the many, among the nations, some Israelites have embraced Christ. And these, Paul explains, have embraced Christ because they were chosen by God. Those who have not embraced Christ were rejected, like Esau. So this is Paul's second statement. So we get statement one, we get objection, we get response. And then we come to Paul's second statement, which I've just, they bleed into each other, which I've just said. God chooses some and rejects others. And this is not based on works in any way. God does not choose those whom he chooses because he sees in them something worthy of choice. He doesn't look at down through history at people and say, okay, there's something worthy there. There's something meritorious there by which or for which I will choose. It's not that at all. And Esau and Jacob he uses as an example. So in verse 11 we read this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And this language of calling is very salvific for Paul. This is salvation language. This is God's call unto salvation. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then in verse 14, we get the objection. That's Paul's statement. God chooses not based on works those whom he would choose. And then the objection comes to this idea of election. Well, if God chooses some and rejects others apart from anything in them, then he must be unjust. This God you preach about, Paul, doesn't sound fair at all. This God working through Christ does not sound just. This is not 
fair. He chooses some and not others, and not based on anything he sees in them. Paul's response, which we looked at last week, was by no means is God unjust. Instead, he works according to his mercy. No one deserves to be chosen. That's fundamental for this question. As we think about election, this whole idea of God choosing some to be saved, we first have to recognize that no one deserves to be chosen. But God mercifully elects some. And further, he hardens some to show his glory. Like Pharaoh, we see the example of Pharaoh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So as Pharaoh is going through, Moses first comes to him. God tells uh, Moses in, in Exodus 4 that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And throughout the process, what we find is Pharaoh does not listen to the Lord. And even after all those plagues, it really is breathtaking. I mean, there's a point in Exodus where we see the servants of Pharaoh like they're looking over at this guy who in, in uh, Egyptian theology and philosophy was seen as, as a deity. They're looking over at Pharaoh thinking, what are you doing? Why was it that Pharaoh continued in his hardness? Well, God had been at work in raising Pharaoh up for this very purpose. God mercifully elects some. And he hardens some to show his glory. So that is Paul's third statement. All of this, mercy and hardening, are from the Lord and are entirely due to his will. So verse 18, it's where we left last week, says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you can imagine this, of course, raises all sorts of questions, and it raises an objection. It leads to the objection that we find as we enter into verse 19 for our passage today. And so that's what we're going to look at, the objection and response to this notion that God shows mercy on some whom he wills, and he hardens some whom he wills, and that it is purely, it is entirely, it is totally according to the counsel of his will, as we read in Ephesians. But before we get to the text, let me just give an encouragement for all of us. Uh, Paul is obviously dealing with some hard truths in this passage. I mean, these are difficult things that should not be spoken about or proclaimed, or taught, or meditated upon lightly. These are truths with great gravity. He is dealing with hard things. Our job is to walk behind the apostle. Our job is to sit under the apostolic teaching. Remember in the book of Acts, what does it say? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are sent 
by God. They have a prophetic ministry. Their writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is inspired by God. We're not reading the opinions of a guy named Paul, a Jewish man who lived in the first century. We are reading the very word of the living God. And so we walk behind Paul. We sit under Paul. I just want to encourage us to be teachable. To be teachable. You know, as I read commentaries on this passage, one of the things that is an important part of preaching is to to read lots and lots of commentaries, to read as much as you can on the passage that you're going to teach, to get a sense for what's been said about the passage. So you want to get the big picture and the details. And as I read commentaries on this passage, I noticed that rather than following Paul's clear logic, Some are doing interpretive gymnastics to get around what Paul is saying. And some of these people are otherwise excellent interpreters. I remember reading this week and where I would, I would oftentimes read a particular interpreter and just be, you know, really following the logic and understanding and, and seeing how pieces are being put together and attention to context and so forth. All of a sudden they just fall right off the apple cart when they come to this passage, and they start doing interpretive gymnastics. Two major things in particular, because if we were to get into all the different weeds of the way that this has been interpreted and the different views and so forth, it would be quite extensive. But I want to just mention two broad brush things, and that is first, what I've seen is allowing the individual contexts of quoted passages to somehow undermine or trump what Paul himself is clearly arguing in his use of those passages. So our job as we come to this is to understand what Paul is saying, right? That's our job, to understand what Paul is saying and how Paul is using Old Testament texts to make his apostolic point. And what I've seen in commentaries is there is this getting lostness in those places that Paul quotes. And then what, what comes out of that is a reinterpretation of the clear logic of the apostle here in this passage. So I think that is a danger. And I, I alluded to some of that last week. A second thing that I've seen is just making subtle grammatical arguments that do not fit the context of the passage as a whole. So little bits of grammar that are, are isolated and blown up out of proportion in, in such a way that they eclipse the, the context, the way that Paul is using words and the logic, the, the passage preceding and the passage coming after and basic interpretive principles of just seeing the line of thought and the context of his argument. These little grammatical subtleties get tripped over And it becomes a means of losing the apostles' thought. So these, you know, I could get into the details on that, but these are two pitfalls that I think interpreters. So so you may, after today's sermon, and you you should, after last week and today's sermon, you may want to go and read a few commentaries on this passage. And you will find lots of different views, and you will find, I think, these two things in particular. But with those things being said, let's go ahead and stand And read this passage, Romans 9, verses 1 to 23. 
This is God's word, and we will focus on 19 to 23, but we'll read all of it. Try to follow his logic. Try to follow what the apostle is saying. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let me just pause there for a moment. Uh, yes, it is true in those passages, uh, both in Malachi and in Genesis, that uh, you have Esau for Edom and Jacob for Israel. And so you do have, in a sense, the, the destinies of two distinct peoples in history. But that is not to eliminate the individuality of it, that Jacob and Esau are the objects of God's choosing specifically, not just these two nations, Edom and Israel. So I'll go on. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And then here's our passage for today. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I've heard that one before. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for 
glory. And I want to go ahead and read verse 24 to connect it, because I'll refer to it later. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You can go ahead and be seated. By the way, that's pretty individual as well. Uh, Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We're not talking about merely the destiny of nations in God's electing purposes. We're talking about election with regard to eternal destiny, with regard to salvation. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his blessing. This is uh, somewhat dense material. Uh, It is difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but I pray that it will be clear today and that it will at least start us on a course of digging deeper into these questions, or at least as deep as we ought to go uh, into these questions. So let's pray. Father, we are so humbled by the privilege that we have to be in your word, to, to read what we have before us, God, to hear of your salvation through Christ and God, to to get a a glimpse into your eternal purposes, Lord, to see what you are doing in the world and what you have been doing from eternity past. Even, Lord, to get insight into your eternal decrees. And God, to, to think that we, who are Christians, are the recipients of your pure grace entirely from your will that you have graciously desired to move us from the kingdom of darkness, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the light of your beloved Son, that you have transferred us into this glorious kingdom. God, we praise you for that. Lord, we should give our entire lives to to you, to to serve you, to to see that you are glorified, to to serve for the sake of your name. God, why would we waste our lives on anything else but to live entirely in all of our doing, in all of our speaking, in all of our thinking for your glory. Is this not the end of all things? So we praise you, God, that we get insight into this from your word. Lord, we pray that you would help me to teach it clearly today. We pray that you would open up all of our minds to understand, all of our hearts to receive your word. And Lord, that we would we would dig and, and pray and meditate and, and seek more and more to understand what you have revealed to us here in, in this wonderful epistle, this most famous of Paul's letters, Romans. God, we ask that our time together today through the rest of the service would be mutually edifying, that it would glorify you. We thank you for Philip's baptism earlier, Lord. What a testimony to your grace in our lives. God, thank you for your grace in his life. Thank you for your faithfulness, God, to bring some to know you and to be in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have been merciful to Philip. God, would he spend the rest of his life praising you for your mercy. We pray for all of our children. Lord, we ask that you would be merciful to them. We pray that they would be vessels for your eternal glory, that they would be vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Lord, we pray on their behalf. And we thank you, God, that we have time together to fellowship today. We ask that during our fellowship time we would speak words of encouragement to each other and that we would just all leave here today with a deeper sense of your presence and a deeper desire to live for you, to to love Jesus, 
and to see his name made great in the world. Thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Sovereign Potter. And you'll see that up here on, uh, on the screen. And we're going to look at two things as we try to unpack these verses. First, a humbling reality. And secondly, a mysterious purpose. What we have here is a humbling, as we think about the sovereign potter, we have a humbling reality and a mysterious purpose. So let's look first at a humbling reality. Let's go to verses 19 to 21 for this. Verses 19 to 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? As I said before, this passage begins with an objection, an objection to Paul's previous Statement, And I think Thomas Schreiner, uh, one particular commentator, uh, very concisely summarizes the objection well. He says it this way, If God shows mercy and hardens whomever he wills, regardless of human effort or choice, then how can he possibly assign blame to human beings? By the way, this is a very frequently cited objection. It's funny to me. It's funny to me that we get this very objection in the Bible. We get it right here. And yet, people still use this very same objection today as though that objection has not already been answered in Scripture. How can people be responsible if God is the one doing the choosing. If God chooses to reject someone or harden someone, then how can he possibly assign blame to that person? How can Pharaoh be responsible for all that he did, all the rejecting and self-hardening and all of the blaspheming and murderous intent and everything else that we find in Pharaoh's heart swirling around? How can he be responsible for that If God hardens whomever he wills, and he hardened Pharaoh. How can that be? According to your message, Paul, human beings cannot be responsible for their actions, for their hardness, for their sin, because God has hardened them. This is a frequently cited objection to the doctrine of unconditional election. So how does Paul respond to this objection? I think the problem is that many just aren't satisfied with Paul's response. Let me say that again. Many just aren't satisfied with the apostle of Jesus Christ's response. If God's choice is conditional... In any way, based on foreseen faith, wouldn't this have been a great opportunity for Paul to explain that? 
Think about that for a moment. All of the ways that people try to get around what Paul is saying in this passage, if in fact it is the case that God foresees who will believe and who will not, this would have been a great time, Paul, to make that clarification. Think about it. This would have been a great time for Paul to say, oh, 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 you misunderstand. This would have been a great time for him to correct that misunderstanding, but that is not what Paul does. Notice that. Get that really clear in your mind. That is not where Paul goes. So what is his response? To put it simply, he puts man in his place. He puts man in his place. Prophetically. Apostolically. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He shuts the mouth of the one who would argue with God. I had Job read earlier because uh, it was difficult trying to find the right passage. You could have read about four chapters there, but I wasn't going to do that to Caleb. Um, But, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting that we see the same sort of thing Job's life. I mean, you're reading about Job's life and you read the beginning and you see what happens to all of his kids die. All of his kids die. He loses everything. He's sitting basically in a puddle of misery. And even to all of that, what is God's response to Job at the end? Who are you, Job? Were you there when I made the universe? No, you were not. Who are you, Job? And this is similar. This is a similar response that we have here. The mouths are shut. It's important to see, though, that the verb here, answer back, answer back to God, carries the sense of arguing with God, of challenging God or contending with him, saying, well, that can't be true because if God does that, then humans aren't responsible. I hear that all the time. Various podcasts and teachers I won't name names, but some of whom I I greatly respect for various reasons, but they make this sort of argument. That can't be true because if God does that, then humans aren't responsible. Humans can't be blamed. They've got it all figured out in their minds. They've taken a few philosophy courses, written a few books. They've got it all figured out. Can't be. Paul's response, who are you, O man? So, answering back to God, I think we need to understand that this is really directed mostly at the opponent, the challenger, then the person who is trying to work these things out biblically and intellectually. So let me say this to all of us. Folks here in our church are probably along the spectrum. Uh, Attenders as well as members, we don't Uh, We we say to folks who are coming to be members, we say, look, uh, this is part of our doctrine as a church. You can see it on our doctrinal statement. Uh, You don't have to have it all figured out in your mind. You're you're still wrestling with some of these things. But we would say two things. One, that you don't come here and oppose these doctrines. And two, that you remain teachable in your heart. And if in good conscience you're teachable on these things, then join. By all means, join the church. But let me just say, 
people are working through these things biblically and intellectually. So the last thing I want to do today is beat you over the head if you're still wrestling with these things and give you the sense that if you're asking any questions at all, you're a blasphemer. That's not the case at all. We wrestle with these things. We, we come to, you know, some of the most well-known proponents of uh, Reformed theology, I think specifically of R.C. Sproul and John Piper, just two, uh, for instance, were not did not have this theology when they started out in life. They came to it and through much turmoil and much wrestling. And so do wrestle, do read, but do listen to the apostle's logic as he unpacks it for us in this passage. Paul moves from this basic response of putting man in his place to explaining the humbling reality. And here it is. There is God and there are human beings. Humans are molded, formed. God is the molder. He is the former. No one molded God. He is. As he revealed to Moses in the burning bush, I am that I am. Or I am who I am. He is God. He was, he is, and he forever will be. No one formed him. But we are formed. Humans are the clay. God is the potter. This reference to forming or molding takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, at the creation of man, where it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. It reminds us all the way back to that point. And Paul here cites a few passages from Isaiah. And you can go and look. Most Bibles will give you the cross-references when uh, one of the biblical writers is alluding to or citing or quoting or whatever uh, another author within Scripture. And, And here Paul cites a few passages from Isaiah to make his point. But he is drawing more generally on a well-known metaphor in the history of Judaism. So you can go through ancient Jewish literature in the Old Testament and outside of the Old Testament, and you can see that this notion of God as potter and humans as the clay we, f- we find throughout. God is the potter, and we are the clay. So does the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? Of course not. That does not happen. Because God, as the potter over the clay, has authority to do with it what he pleases. Let me say that again. If God is the potter and we are the clay, then God has full, absolute, unqualified authority to do with the clay as he pleases. That is precisely Paul's point here. But what is the lump of clay? That's an important question. And this is where interpreters have really uh, wrestled with this and been on different, in different places. What Even within the Reformed community, those who understand election to be unconditional, what is this lump of clay? Is it humanity as created Or is it humanity conceived of as fallen? Is it humanity conceived of as created or conceived of as fallen? Let me give you one quote from a well-known 
reformed theologian from the 19th century, Charles Hodge, he says this, The mass of fallen men are in his hands, and it is his right to dispose of them at pleasure, to make all vessels unto honor, or all unto dishonor, or some to one and some to the other. So from the mass of fallen humanity, conceived of as fallen, and this gets back into the decrees of God, and we're not going to get into that, but humanity conceived as fallen, from that mass of humanity, from that lump of clay, some become vessels for honor and some for dishonor. From that one lump. Some for honorable use, others destined for dishonorable use. Let me give you a, a passage from Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 4 says this, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God is sovereign over the wicked. But Paul explains more about the purpose of these vessels in the next set of verses. And so now we need to go to our second point this morning, and that is a mysterious purpose. We see the humbling reality of God as potter. We are the clay, and God can do with the clay. He can do with the lump of clay whatever he desires. But Now we come to a mysterious purpose, God's purpose behind all of this. Look at verses 22 to 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? I can remember when I first, I, I didn't grow up hearing anything about election or predestination uh, at all. And I remember when um, I first, when I was 18 and, and uh, I was starting to, God had changed my heart at 18. And I was going through my dad's office. He is a pastor and I was going through his office looking at some of his books. And uh, I picked up a John MacArthur study Bible. And uh, looked through some of the notes. I was reading through the passages in Ephesians and Romans. And I was just amazed to, to discover some of these things really for the first time. These were not ideas that I had uh, grown up with. And then after that, I ended up reading a book by the same author, MacArthur, Saved Without a Doubt. And it's a book that's really helpful if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, as I was at the time. And so uh, it was through that that I came to understand more about God's sovereignty in salvation. But it was also at that time that I first discovered these verses. These are not the, uh, this is not part of the Romans road <laughs> that you grow up with. These verses aren't one of the stepping stones on that path that we memorize, you know, as children. And so these were very, very troubling and strange verses to me as I came to see them. But you might be tempted, as we go into this uh, little section here, you might be tempted to think that Paul is only dealing with a hypothetical situation. Some have argued this. Paul's just dealing with a hypothetical situation here. As verse 22 begins with, what if God, uh, or if there, you have if uh, being used there. 
But we can see from the context in verse 24 that Paul is talking about what God actually has done and will do. So go back to verse 24. You can see it there. In order to make known the riches, so I'm going to read verse, down through verse 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There's no sense here in which this is hypothetical. This is real life experienced in God's purposes. Even us whom he has called. This is happening. What Paul is describing in verses 22 to 23 is working itself out. It's working itself largely in the hardening of many Israelites. It's working itself out in God calling some among the Jews and among the Gentiles to salvation. This is not hypothetical. So someone just come and read the if and all of a sudden go off to the moon leaving the context and saying, well, the word if is there, so this must be hypothetical. I don't think that's what Paul is doing at all. Instead, the reason he begins with if is because he is saying, what if God does this? Doesn't he have the right to do it? It's a, it's, it's, it's a rhetorical device. He said, if God does this, he has the right to do it. He just, he just mentioned God's authority. God has authority over the clay. To prepare some, some are vessels of dishonor and some are vessels of honor. If God does this, he has the right to do it. That is the sense. Now, I have entitled this point a mysterious purpose, not because I think Paul's language here is unclear. I don't think we read this passage and say, what is he saying? I, I, I think we actually see what he is saying. And I think it is, it is right there on the surface. But I call it a mysterious purpose because the teaching itself is mysterious to us. It's not what he's saying that is mysterious. It's how this can be that is so mysterious. It's God's ways. It's God's purposes in history. It's God's purposes eternally. It's God's purposes in saving and in hardening that are incredibly mysterious to us. How does God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together? We know that human beings are responsible for sin. We will be judged by God. Those who are outside of Christ will be judged by God for their sins and sent to hell for their sins. They are responsible for their sins. We are responsible for our sins, but they have been put upon Christ. Christ bore the responsibility for our sins on the cross. He became a curse for us. He took our sin guilt upon himself. That sin guilt remains upon those who are outside of Christ. And they are humanly responsible for that. And yet God is Sovereign. These things are very difficult because they are beyond our understanding. They are inscrutable. They are higher than we are. But this question of God's sovereignty and human responsibility is the great question that we simply cannot answer. They are compatible. We can read the Bible and we can see the tension, but the tension does not mean they both can't be true. It transcends our ability to logic it out, to reason it out. 
It transcends our ability to piece it all together and get it all neat in front of us and step back and say, voila. We're not able to do that. We are left with mystery. These two truths are compatible, but their relationship is mysterious beyond our knowing. But what we first must affirm, what Paul says here, is about his purposes. We have to first affirm, as we look at Paul's purposes, that uh, God chooses some of fallen humanity to save, and he rejects or hardens others. And we see that this is first and foremost for his glory, the glory of his judgment. God desires to show his wrath and to make known his power. That's what we read here. So as with Pharaoh, he patiently endures the sin. Those who are rejected, those who are not elect, are described here as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now this is, I like to avoid labels the best I can, but this is the idea of double predestination. So you maybe have been wrestling with this in your group, and you've been talking about it, uh, and it's good to talk about these things. It's very mysterious, but it is, what we are reading here is the notion of double predestination, and it is troubling. It is troubling for some, but we must notice that God is hardening and rejecting these individuals as fallen sinners, They are children of wrath, as Ephesians 2, 3 says. Children of wrath. And I want to give you another quote, just to echo the one I gave you before from Charles Hodge, that I think helps us to make sense of this notion that God destines some here and destines others there. Let me read this to you. Human beings, because of sin, this is Douglas Moo, are responsible for their ultimate condemnation. Thus, God's bestowing of mercy and his hardening are not equivalent acts. I want to read that again. Human beings, because of sin, are responsible for their ultimate condemnation. Thus, God's bestowing of mercy and his hardening are not equivalent acts. God's mercy is given to those, now listen to this, this is so important. God's mercy is given to those who do not deserve it. His hardening affects those who have already, by their sin, deserved condemnation. So do you see the disjuncture between these ideas or, or the lack of symmetry? We can, we can say that Paul is talking about double predestination in a sense, but we must also affirm that the way in which God is showing mercy is he, is he is showing mercy to some who absolutely do not deserve it. And he is hardening others who do, in fact, deserve it. This is mysterious to us indeed. But where does this purpose end? And I think this is where we're supposed to end. This is where our minds are supposed to go. You know, it's easy as we talk through these questions to get lost down in the weeds and to just be scratching our heads and to, to be just lost in the complexity of it all. But where does Paul take this? What is the ultimate purpose of all of God's mysterious workings? What is, what is all of this driving to? We get that in verse 
23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You know, this past week, the question came up in our group. Does God get more glory from judging sinners or saving sinners? That's the kind of question, you know, that we ask. We ask those sorts of questions. And uh, the difficulty of these verses of this passage leads us to ask those kinds of questions. Does God get more glory from judging sinners or saving sinners? Well, I think the logic of verses 22 and 23 gives us the answer. The ultimate purpose of God's choosing some and rejecting others is that he might display the riches of his glory, the manifold perfections of his nature for vessels that are prepared for eternal glory. Think about it this way. If there was universalism, if every human being were saved, how in the world would God be able to declare the, the, the true depth of his mercy if there was nothing that we were shown mercy from? But God's intentions are that those who have been shown mercy, when all is said and done, when the new heavens and the new earth have come, that we would know that is what God saved me from. God is declaring in his judgment of sinners the very thing that we did not get because of his grace and his mercy. Totally unmerited. Totally undeserved. Ephesians 1 verses 5 to 6 says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There is one answer to the question, what will we be doing forever in heaven? And now, of course, we can talk details. You know, what, what we will actually be doing day in and day out. There will, well, if you can say day in and day out, it'll be eternal. But what will we be doing? One answer. Praising God for his glorious grace. And when it is recognized and fully understood in God's judgment at the end of time, however all of that is going to play out, whatever it is we're going to see, whatever it is we're going to realize, whatever it is we're going to come face to face with, by that time, what God reveals to us, what we will see is that we were saved from something awful that we deserved, and instead God gave us mercy. He showed us pity, he showed us compassion, and the whole lump of clay could have been thrown in the garbage. The whole lump of clay deserved to be eternally destroyed. But some, in fact, many, untold number from every tribe, tongue, and nation, will around the throne of the Lamb praise God for His glorious grace, which He purchased for us through the blood of His very own Son. His very own Son. 
God's glory, His glorious grace, is the end of all things. It's the end. It's the purpose. It's the aim. It's the target. For all of God's doings throughout history, for all that God has revealed, for all that God has decreed, and we can't even begin to enter into that with any depth. Before the world began, all of it for the purpose of lavishing, lavishing His glory and His mercy on vessels prepared beforehand for glory. If this is the case, how then ought we to live? If our very purpose for existence and our very purpose for being saved is to the praise of God's glorious grace forever and ever, how should we spend our time? How should we speak How should we guard our hearts? How should we display the glory of Christ and his church through our marriages? The fight for our marriages is the fight for God's glory. It's not just the fight for you being happy for the next several decades. It's not just the fight so that your kids can have a good model. It's the fight for the glory of God in the earth, which is the very reason for which you were made and saved. Eternally, our marriages display, fathers and husbands, our marriages display the message of the gospel as we lay down our lives for our wives, as Christ laid down his life for the church. And what greater privilege is there to have a a room of little disciples, little hearts and minds, to fill with God's glorious truth and to pray diligently over them that they may grow up and glorify Christ in the earth and that God may have ordained it by means of our prayers that they would come to know Christ and that they would forever be a testimony to his glorious grace. That's why we exist. Dads, husbands, that's why we have Wives and children is for this mysterious purpose. Experienced now and experienced forever. And as I used to do in bed at night as a kid, totally baffled. I used to lay there and say, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it would scare me to death. I just hadn't, I didn't have a mind to capture all that. None of us does. None of us will be able to capture all of that. But forever and ever and ever and ever, and keep saying it, we will be to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, how it instructs us. And we thank you for this passage. Lord, it is challenging to our sentiments. It challenges us on so many levels. And God, we ask you, Lord, that it will settle clearly in our minds and, Lord, that all of us will continue as students of your word to understand more deeply what we have here, God. And as we go through the rest of Romans 9 through 11, Lord, that you would just clarify more and more for us what we've encountered 
here today in these verses. God, we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word, of being able to to have it in our ears. God, we ask that you would be with us this week as we leave here, that we would meditate on it. God, that we would really live for your glory. We say that a lot, but we don't do it a lot. And God, we pray that you would help us to do it a lot more, to truly live in terms of our motives, in terms of our dependency, in terms of our intentionality, and in terms of our self-control and love toward others, Lord, that we would really live for your glory, the glory of your grace. We thank you for saving us, Father. We don't deserve it. We deserve hell. I know I do. We thank you, God, that you have been merciful to us through Christ. We pray, Father, that you would be with us as we go through the Lord's Supper, that our hearts would be lifted up to consider the glory of the cross, where all of this was purchased for us. God, that we would, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of him. In Christ's name, amen.